Hello, YA fantasy and adventure fans, and welcome to Jordan Bartlett's Contest of Queens. My name is Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Jordan Bartlett's Contest of Queens. It's a story about Jax, an inventor's apprentice and lower-born farm girl who must save her homeland when tragedy threatens to tear the already divided queendom apart. The plan is simple enough. Break into the upper realm, compete in the Contest of Queens, and win the crown. But infiltrating the upper realm is far more perilous than even she could have imagined. It's a story about friendship, love, bravery, and defying gravity. But that's not the only reason I love this book. No, Contest of Queens is one of those unputdownable books that ignites your passion to fight for what you believe in and jump with two feet into the action. It's a book to live in. The story opens with Connor, aka Cornelius, a prince and upperborn citizen who dreams of the land below the clouds and sends a message into the abyss in hopes it will reach a friend. Meanwhile, our hero, Jax, discovers the key to her adventure when she meets the town's inventor, Master Bruna. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, Camcat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of Contest of Queens for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and enter a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! CamCat Publishing presents Contest of Queens by Jordan H. Bartlett. Narrated by Carissa Vacker. In memory of Papa Roy, for painting castles in the sky and showing me the way to get there, your stories are sorely missed. 1. The First Voyage There's too many of them, Ileana roared, her long black hair streaming behind her like a war banner. Connor's keen eyes studied the battlefield and he cursed, sweeping his hair from his face, the wind whipping the acrid stench of battle around him. Their eyes locked for a moment. Adrenaline still coursing through her veins, she grasped his waist and drew him in for a deep, passionate kiss. When she let him go, he took a moment to catch his breath. Eyes wild, smile flashing, she drew her sword. But with you here, we just might have a chance. He stood up straighter. Her words burned in his mind, and the ghost of her lips lingered on his. He drew his sword and brandished it high. Let's finish this, he bellowed. Ileana's battle cry rang in his ears, and they leaped forward as one. A light flashed across his field of vision, blinding him. He staggered back, his sword dropping to his side. Ileana looked at him, confused. The light flashed again, and he felt the world around him begin to fade. Rolling over, he groaned. The weight of leather armor dissolved to the weight of feather down. The first fingers of sunlight crept their way through the crack in the heavy velvet curtains. 
Gentle rays inched along the cold stone floor, up a mahogany bedpost, and dusted the sleep from the prince's eyes. His brow wrinkled as he fought to stay with Ileana a little longer behind his closed lids. Reluctantly, Connor blinked his blue eyes open. Once, twice, then he sat upright. It's Sunday, he thought. Finally, every good adventure starts on a Sunday. Stretching, he threw back the covers and cast his gaze around the room. Already, his mind whirled with preparations. He would need light clothes, nothing to weigh him down, and his compass. A list of items ran through his head, and he started moving about the room to retrieve them all. Although he tried his best to pack quietly, his excitement inspired slamming drawers and heavy footfalls. He rummaged through pairs of leather boots, Buckles clinked together and fabric murmured softly as he sifted through blacks, browns, and tans. He picked up a tall pair, frowned, then exchanged them for shorter ones, the leather well-worn. He couldn't risk blisters today, and the tall ones rubbed his ankles. Next, he dragged his knapsack from under his desk. The canvas was worn on a corner, a leather strap needed mending, and it had the faint aroma of wet dog. This was not something a prince would own. He had traded one of the serving boys for it, as all of his bags were much too fancy for expeditions. He tightened one of the straps, and his mind floated to the leather hilt of the sword in his dream. His sword, the sword of a knight. He paused and sighed as the thought struck him. To be a knight. Now that was the dream, but that was ridiculous. His mother had explained to him once that only women could become guards, and of them, only certain guards could become knights. The knights of the queendom carried the responsibility of taking another's life. Only those who could create life could be trusted with the burden of extinguishing it. Besides, at 14, he wanted the glory, not the burden. Indulging for a moment in the fantasy, he saw himself in the light armor of a knight, Sword aloft, cape unfurling behind him, the wind blowing through his brown hair, commanding a battalion of strong and beautiful guards, all secretly in love with him, of course. He, the first male knight. Much more exciting than being one of a long line of princes. All princes got to do was learn how to be good advisors. Shaking the fantasy from his head, he turned back to his task. He sighed. He couldn't be a knight but he could be an explorer. He could be a conqueror of realms. When he was younger, he used to pretend he was a bold adventurer, Connor the Conqueror, a man who bravely explored the herb gardens and discovered new tracks through the manicured hedge mazes. He chuckled at the memory. Since then, he had never felt quite comfortable as Cornelius. Connor was a better fit, less stuffy, and more important, it was his, something private a rare possession for a prince. His eyes scanned the bookshelf for his telescope. Not spying it there, he opened the large studded trunk at the end of his bed. The hinges on the lid groaned weakly. He sifted through its contents, his fingertips brushing across an assortment of forgotten items at the bottom, until he located the desired object, a small brass spyglass. He tucked it in his belt in the same fashion as Amelia the Daring on the cover of To the World's End. He was almost ready. Wincing at the thought of the commotion he had most definitely caused, 
Connor stepped back lightly to where his project of many evenings lay finished and gleaming on his desk by the window. In the new daylight, the hull shone a warm, rich red. It was a wooden boat and his ticket to adventure. The hull was about half the length of his forearm and was topped with a canvas sail. He picked it up carefully from where it had been propped up to dry and surveyed his handiwork. Not a splinter in sight. They had tended to prefer ending up in his thumbs. He gently opened a small hidden compartment in the center of the ship's deck to reveal a rectangular recess. Then, placing the boat back on the desk, he opened the top drawer, withdrew the letter he had written the night before while the paint was drying, and rolled it up into a tight tube. He slid the signet ring off his pinky finger and held it up to the morning sunlight. Tilting it between his fingers, he admired as the light danced off the engraved griffin. It pranced with wings unfurled and talons flaring as if to grasp the clouds it rose above. A design of his own request. It marked his first attempt at his own coat of arms. Every 14-year-old should have their own coat of arms, even boys. He had debated what creature to choose for days. His mother had the lion on hers, his father had the eagle, but he had wanted something entirely his own. He had seen their likeness in paintings and tapestries throughout the palace, and twice in person when the griffins had overseen an important audience in the throne room. They were magnificent. He had never been more in awe of another living creature in his life. When he one day became the queen's advisor, he wanted to inspire that same awe. So, the griffin he chose. Master Estes, the court goldsmith, had been delighted when Connor described the desired ring. Master Estes, who insisted that Connor call him Hef, even though any person who was a master of their craft must be referred to as master, would be far less delighted to find out where his intricate work was headed. Connor shook his head and pushed that thought out of his mind. Placing the scroll inside the ring, he fished a small glass vial out of the top drawer and slotted the bundle into the vial. He stoppered it with a cork and took some time to seal the top with melted wax. That done, he delicately placed the sealed vial into the hall, slid the lid shut, and grinned. Now he was ready. Connor glanced out the window. The sun shone brightly on the horizon and sent tiny rainbows through the crystalline pattern around the edges of his large bay windows. It was shaping up to be a fine day. He wrapped the boat in a kerchief and placed it carefully in his knapsack. Swinging the pack onto his back, he shrugged his shoulders, letting it settle. With one last sweeping glance around his room, he crossed to the door. Listening for any noise out on the landing, hand hovering over the pommel of a sword that was not there, Connor eased the door open a crack, an inch, then all the way. He looked up and down the empty carpeted hallway. Surely not all adventures began so casually. He was almost disappointed not to be intercepted. It wasn't until he descended the servant's stairwell that he encountered his first challenge. The decadent smells from the kitchen wafted up the stairwell and caressed his nose, making his mouth water. He had forgotten to pack food, and as his days as Connor the Conqueror had taught him, he would need to maintain his strength for the long journey ahead. Quietly, he snuck into the kitchen and ducked behind a large barrel of potatoes. The kitchen was alive with smells and sounds. Master Marmalade, 
no, Master Marmaduke, the head cook, was firing off instructions to her minions and sending them scuttling to and fro. Flour flew, pans clanged, and spoons were held out on demand for a taste. The prince could see the morning's breakfast coming together like a well-choreographed dance. He watched them for a minute before his stomach growled in protest and forced him into action. Crouching and hiding his face, he sidled casually along a sturdy counter until he reached the spot where an assortment of muffins and scones were laid out on cooling racks. Using sleight of hand he and his friend Hector had practiced together, he swiped three muffins into the knapsack he had nonchalantly placed open on the floor. Careful not to draw any attention, he forced himself to slow his actions. He took a moment to lick his fingers clean of the crumbs and berry juice from where he had squashed a raspberry. With that same practiced calm, he picked up his knapsack and sidled toward the door. He was almost free when Master Marmaduke's loud, booming voice silenced the clatter of the kitchen. Wait, her voice cut cleaner than the knife she was using to slice a still steaming loaf of bread. The prince froze and tried to look innocent despite his raspberry-stained fingers. She surveyed him with her hands on her hips, her lips thin, and her eyes narrow. The flower clinging to her hair made her look older than her true years, and the premature gray streaked through her naturally brown locks spoke of a life not leisurely spent. Master Marmaduke had worked for the royal family for the past eight years, but the stress and responsibility of running the royal kitchens had aged her double that. Despite this, her hazel eyes still held a twinkle that sparkled brightest when regarding the prince, as they did now. Prince Cornelius, that is not a proper lunch for a growing boy, she said and walked toward him, picking up a linen bundle filled to bursting with what she considered a proper lunch from one of the few unused counters as she spoke. It always pays to be prepared. She winked as she placed the lumpy package of treats in his hands. The prince smiled. Thanks, Master Marmalade, he said, using the nickname he had given her when he was a child. The cook chuckled fondly. So, where are you headed so early? Will I need to send the search parties today? That was one time, Master Marmalade, and I would have been fine if given another hour, the prince said indignantly. Shrugging off his knapsack, he gently placed the packed lunch inside. Master Marmaduke cleared her throat meaningfully and held out her hand. Connor sighed and pulled two stolen muffins from his sack and placed them in her hand. She accepted them and clicked her fingers, her hand still outstretched. Grinning, Connor handed over the last muffin, squashed raspberry and all, and bowed, conceding before turning toward the door. Master Marmaduke laughed again. All right, you just be kind to this heart of mine. With that, she picked up her knife and turned back to her chopping board. Connor grinned and let the door close behind him. He settled his now much heavier knapsack on his back. Shoulders back, he strode toward the gardens. He had a ship to sail. Once Connor was out on the castle lawns, he took out his compass. He already knew where he was going, but he had been practicing using it with Master Boreas and thought he was getting the hang of how it worked. The needle spun and bobbed. Connor twisted it this way and that and pointed it first toward the sun, then toward the ground. Trying to remember his lessons, he frowned at the tiny, twitchy piece of metal. 
He studied it fruitlessly for a few more minutes before nodding decisively to himself and setting off in a westerly manner, or maybe it was a northern stroll he was embarking upon. No, considering the angle of the sun, it was definitely an eastern expedition, he decided. He headed in the direction of the south tower and past the southern rose garden. Their many-hued heads nodded lazily in the slight morning breeze. The sound of bees flitting between flower beds rose and fell on the air. Grass clung to the soles of Connor's boots as he walked across the expansive palace lawn. A lesser man could get lost in grounds like these, he thought, but I am a fearless conqueror. Remembering how Ileana had looked at him in his dream, he emboldened his stride and began to swing his arms slightly. It was another twenty minutes before he reached the forest and found himself on the banks of the river that his compass had pointed him toward. The water gurgled and giggled in and around the time-worn pebbles and stones that lined the riverbed. The trees were less manicured here and hung low and irregularly along the banks, sometimes dipping their leaves in the fresh water, sometimes grouping together so tightly as to bar others from enjoying that particular stretch of riverbank. Heading downstream, he felt the forest deepening, the river widening. Any sounds from the castle were now far behind him, and his ears filled instead with the sound of rushing water. Every now and then, he heard the groan of two trees colliding in the breeze. The jarring sound of trunk on trunk made the hair stand up on the back of his neck. He was deeply aware that he was an intruder in these parts. His games with the lords and genteel's sons never took him this far. The lords always worried too much about their sons venturing too far from the castle. Connor supposed that was just what mothers did, and their husbands or wives, the genteels, tended to agree with whatever their lord said. A twig snapped and he spun around. Who's there? He asked, his voice thin and feeble to his ears. The moss and lichen absorbed any edge his tone may have held. A gentle breeze played with his hair in reply, and he smelled the damp rot of the forest floor. Heart a flutter, he swallowed and pressed on. If Amelia the Daring had turned back every time a branch snapped, she wouldn't have left her grounds, he thought fiercely. The thought of Amelia staring defiantly into the void spurred him on. He may not be a brave woman, but he was not a boy anymore. He was almost a man, and prince at that. Shoulders back and head high, he lengthened his stride and quickened his pace. It's just a bunch of trees and some water, he told himself. Briefly, his mind flitted to Master Marmaduke, and he tried to deny the wave of relief that came with knowing someone would come to look for him. Twig torn and grass stained, he followed the river for the better part of the morning. Suddenly, the trees thinned, the sun shone down on him, the earth disappeared a few feet in front of him, and he was there. He had made it. The edge of the world. The cliff. The separation between the upper and lower realms. He had seen portraits and tapestries decorated with images of the cliff. He had skirted the edge with his mother many times on horseback. He had even climbed halfway up Quartz Mountain with his friend Hector to see the drop more clearly. But never had he been this close. The dense forest bordering almost the entire edge was enough of a deterrent for most upright citizens. If not the forest, then the possibility of the dizzying fall itself deterred the rest. 
Connor had never been explicitly forbidden to venture this close. It was just assumed he would not entertain the risk. His palms tingling, Connor paused several yards from the edge. The river tumbled over the cliff in a wild and endless stream. The sound of the waterfall was swallowed hundreds of yards below. Stealing himself, Connor placed his pack at the base of the nearest tree. He dropped down on his hands and knees to crawl as close as he dared toward the abyss. Creeping forward and dropping to his stomach, he eased himself toward the large oak tree whose roots seemed to hold this section of the cliff together. He peered over the lip, holding fast to the tree's rough bark. Some of the roots dangled free of the earth like veins outside of a body. Whoa. Connor's eyes flicked down, 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 and down the steep cliff face. Too vast to comprehend, it seemed to curve at the periphery of his vision. He fought a wave of vertigo, closed his eyes for a moment, and opened them to inspect the world below. He saw the waterfall pool into a lake, then flow into a river that meandered its way to a small town. He shifted his gaze toward the line of mountains on the horizon and saw fields, villages, and small patches of forest plotted and pieced and stretched out like a patchwork quilt. A true pied beauty. Whoa. He often forgot the world was so big. Living in the palace, it was easy to forget that the vastness of the upper realm was tiny compared to the rolling fields and hills of the lower realm. He followed the various roads that cut their way around and across the rivers and marshland with his eyes, and marveled at the imposing border of mountains that cut the lower realm off from all that lay beyond. He could not believe his mother ruled such a large queendom. There were still many parts of the upper realm he had not been to, and he had only been to the lower realm once as a baby. All he knew about the lower realm he had heard from attending his mother's meetings with the Council of Four, Four stern women who advised his mother and had advised her mother before her. The council never had nice things to say about Lorians. Words like simple, dirty, and greedy were used often. He stayed that way, frozen on the edge for a long time, reminding himself to breathe, frequently closing his eyes and focusing on the feel of grass and dirt under his palms when the height became too much. But Connor had come here for a reason. Pushing down another wave of vertigo, he retreated a few yards from the edge and eventually made his way to his knapsack. Once there, he felt the tightness in his chest release. He pulled out the small boat and unwrapped it from the kerchief. Bending down, he plucked a few blades of grass, straightened up, and let them fall in the breeze. The wind was perfect for this vessel's maiden voyage. He checked the ship over again, testing the sails, resealing the hatch, and inspecting the hull for any abnormalities. Once he had deemed the boat was seaworthy, and taking a moment to wonder if this was where the term ship shape had come from, he walked over to the water's edge. I should say a few words, he thought. Feeling silly for a moment, but realizing there was no one around to care, he cleared his throat, stood solemnly on the banks of the river, and began. May your flags fly and your riggings hold true. May the wind always be at your back, and may the stars guide your journey. You are the first expedition to seek the land below, and... Uh, good luck. 
He paused, then amended. Goddess be with you all, brave women and men. He nodded, saluted the imaginary crew, then gently placed the small wooden boat in the water and nudged it toward the middle of the river. For a moment, Connor thought the boat had sunk. He lost sight of the vessel as the water climbed over itself to get to the edge first, eager to leap into the void. Then he saw a flash of red in an eddy, and suddenly the edge rushed up to meet the little boat. It hung for just a moment, suspended above the chasm, then toppled out of sight. Connor grinned broadly. Carefully, he crawled over to the cliff's edge again, trying to catch another glimpse of the boat as it fell. He watched the waterfall until long after any chance of spotting the boat had passed, and he rolled onto his back, his heart light and his mind following the ship as it embarked on its great adventure. He may be trapped in his palace, but somewhere far below, his boat ventured into the unknown. Two, work and waterfalls. Wood splintered, sails ripped and were torn free of their eyelets and rigging. The deck lurched as the ship was thrown violently to starboard. Water raced the little vessel through the air. Droplets hardened and glanced off the hull as it gained momentum. Thicker rivers of water threatened to tear the ship apart. It tumbled and spun through the void, crossing the chasm between the two realms, and landed with a soft splash barely audible above the waterfall's roar far, far below. The force of the falling water pummeled it to the riverbed. It rose and was pushed back down, the tumultuous current buffeting the ship from above. Further downstream stood a quaint farm. Hunched over her desk in her room near the light of a flickering candle, a young inventor was elbow deep in her latest project. Tongue out, brows furrowed in concentration, she tied off the final strand of flax, careful not to distort the shape of the basket. Mr. Grimsby had been very clear about that. If one strand was too tight or too loose, the whole basket lost its integrity. Jacqueline, breakfast, her mother called from the kitchen. Jacks blinked. How long had she been sitting there? She stretched and felt a series of pops ripple from neck to back. Long enough to finish, she thought, a satisfied smirk tugging at the corners of her mouth. Clambering to her feet, she allowed a moment for her left leg to wake as she called out, coming, and smoothed her skirts. Her split work skirts were a couple inches too short. She'd had another growth spurt since turning 13 a few months ago. Placing her completed flax basket carefully next to its twin, she picked up her candle and followed its light to the kitchen. The rooster had long since heralded the new day, but it would be another hour or so before the sun's rays were expected to light the lower realm. Her fingers brushed the scroll of her father's well-loved fiddle perched next to the doorway as she entered the main room. Her mother stood with her back to Jack's. Long, dark hair fell in waves to her mid-back, just brushing the bow of her apron. Her faded blue skirts were cut above the calf and split down the middle like her daughter's, ripped leggings peeking through from underneath. She moved about the kitchen on calloused bare feet. Turning, she beamed at her daughter. Tension suddenly left her features and her shoulders relaxed. Jax gave her mother a peck on the cheek and a swift hug, then set the table before sitting down. Good morning, Mum, she said brightly. 
Good morning, Plum. Mind, it's hot. Here you go. One egg or two. Chores straight after breakfast. We have a bit to do now the rain has stopped. Might as well make hay while the sun's out. Her mother slipped two eggs onto Jax's plate and placed the third on her own. She dropped the pan in the wash basin and picked up her wooden chopping board. Placing a fresh loaf of bread on top, she carried it over to the table. Jack stood up, fetched the small stone bowl of salt from near the stove, and settled in her chair again. Are we doing the beans today? Jax asked as she cut off a piece of bread. Her mother nodded. The beans, then we'll till the skirt patch for the second planting, but remember to milk Brindle first, you know how she gets. Jax made a face, but then sat forward as an idea hit her. Mum, she asked, can I go down the river when I'm done? I promise I'll be safe. Her mother frowned slightly. What do you want to go to the river for? She asked. I want to test out my new traps, Jack said through a mouthful of bread. She swallowed and explained. I was talking to Mr. Grimsby. He showed me this trick to weave the flax to make a basket that the fish swim into, but how the opening is designed means the fish can't get out again. If it works, we can have fish for dinner. Her green eyes sparkled, and as she spoke, she wound a strand of auburn hair around her finger. Her mother's face softened. Of course, as long as you make sure you get everything done before you go. Jax nodded, finished the last of her breakfast, and then hurried to clear the plates. She had work to do. Brindle was as grumpy as always. Jax had to coax her to the middle of the barn with a handful of hay. She had made the mistake of milking her within hoof distance of the butter churn once, and it now had a cloven dent to prove it. Talking softly, Jack stroked Brindle's side for a minute before setting to work. Brindle snorted indignantly and stomped a rear hoof, but was relatively well-behaved throughout. The mangy gray cat, whom Jax had named Ranger, slunk in through the open barn door at the sound of the milk hitting the metal pail, he casually wound himself around the legs of Jax's stool, nuzzling her ankles. Jax half-heartedly shooed him away. This isn't for you, she teased. Ranger mewed, making Brindle snort again and swish her tail in annoyance. Careful, Ranger, she warned. Remember last week? Your tail still has a kink in it. Apparently, Ranger did not remember last week, nor did he pay any mind to his kinked tail. Instead, he mewed again and began to wind himself around Brindle's hooves. Brindle snorted a third time, flicked her tail, and kicked. Jax was just in time to snatch the pail up before Brindle kicked again, right where it had been a moment before. Ranger yowled and raced out the barn door. Jax staggered backward, placed the milk on the wooden workbench, and quickly tried to calm Brindle down. Whoa, girl, there you go, that's it she said in a low voice and hummed a fragment of a melody her father used to play. Stroking the stubborn cow's neck, she looked around to see where Ranger had run off to. Hey, she yelled as she spotted him on the bench, lapping up the fresh milk from the pail. He looked at her, froth stuck to his furry chin, and began to purr. Jax rolled her eyes and grinned before waving him away. Mom would have kittens if she saw you. Ranger flicked his kinked tail triumphantly before jumping to the floor and trotting out of sight. Picking and shelling the beans took much longer than expected. The rows of bean stalks nodded and bowed gaily in the breeze, 
leaf tendrils tugging them back into line if they strayed too far from their posts. Jax's family had the best bean crop around, not that it was anything to brag about. Jax would have much preferred to have the best strawberry crop around. There was only so much one could do with beans. When Jax was younger, she used to lie amongst the rows and look up at the plants as they crept up their training posts. She would imagine climbing one all the way up to the clouds, or even just to the upper realm. Now she was much more practical. A bean plant would not hold ranger's weight, let alone hers. She had read once that clouds were just water and dust, so climbing onto them was not an option either. The upper realm, though. Jack sighed as her eyes flicked toward the steep cliff a short distance from the edge of her family's farm. Now that would be an adventure. The cliff rose like a smooth, impossibly high wall that spanned left and right as far as Jax could see in either direction. If Jax craned her neck and squinted her eyes, she could just make out the top and could barely see the odd tree hanging over the edge. Jax's fingers worked deftly shelling the beans, throwing the pods in one barrel and the beans in another. I wonder what it would be like up there, she thought, as she picked a new bean pod from her basket and slit the seam with her fingernail. There was a saying, in the lower realm, the sun arrives late and leaves early, which, while it was used to gripe, was more of an actual fact. As the sun made its way across the sky from east to west every day, it remained hidden by the surrounding mountains long after the workday had started, shone happily as it reached its zenith, then began to slowly slide behind the other side of the upper realm. The cliff and the mountains caused an extended twilight and a premature sunset. But if she lived in the upper realm, she would have hours of extra daylight. If she lived in the upper realm, she'd get to see a real sunrise. She looked up at the cliff again, streaked here and there with thin waterfalls that misted the space around it. Too steep to climb up. She mused and looked enviously at the swallow flying in the updrafts near the rim. Discard the shell, save the bean, grab the next. The cliff's not the way to go anyway, but the bridge is as far-fetched as my beanstalk idea, she thought as she popped a freshly shelled bean into her mouth. The bridge was less of an actual bridge one would use to cross a stream or river, and more of a winding, heavily guarded ramp spanning the distance from the lower realm to the upper realm at a steady gradient to allow the braver wagons and carriages to make the descent. The expanses of ramp were suspended by elaborate cables and anchors in the rock. It looked like a child's marble track when seen from far away, marking a long zigzag up the cliff face. To get from a zig to a zag, there was a lift at each edge, controlled by a guard in a toll booth. Jax's father used to always say that the toll guards had the easiest job in the queendom, but that it was no surprise no one wanted it. The hours were long, and even though it was womaned all year long, the bridge was only used once a year during trade week and very rarely by the royal family during dissension celebrations. It had not always been so rare for people to travel between realms, but free movement between the realms had stopped long before Jax was born. Trade week was always exciting. Everyone dressed in their best to watch the carriages filled with gold as they traveled the lower realm. As Bridgeport was adjacent to the bridge, its residents always saw the procession at the height of its splendor. Even more lavish and exciting were the royal dissensions, 
the last of which had been almost 15 years ago to celebrate the birth of the prince. Jax had not yet been born, but the townsfolk still told stories of the glittering jeweled carriages and the queen whose hair shone like the sun. Jax popped another bean into her mouth. She had imagined countless scenarios that saw her up the bridge. Some daydreams involved her tricking the guards to let her up each level, others involved her sneaking into the trade week procession, but none extended beyond the brink of the cliff and into the upper realm itself. Her imagination could never get that far. She chewed thoughtfully and looked from her somehow still full basket to the small piles of beans at the bottom of the barrel. Jax always seemed to forget just how many bean stalks they had and how many beans that meant she needed to shell, so it was well past noon before she threw the last bean in the barrel and discarded the pod. Her fingers were red and she had bean bits under each of her nails. Her mother had joined her some time ago and now looked up from her own pile. She smiled as her daughter looked over to the carrot patch. Stretching, her mother glanced up at the beautiful blue sky and remarked, you know, it is Sunday after all, and I would hate for you to miss out on this day. Go test your traps. We can save the carrots for tomorrow. Jax happily wiped her hands on her skirts and hugged her mother. Thanks, Mom. I'll catch you some fish. She beamed and rushed inside to get her things before her mother could change her mind. Jax hummed to herself, her two freshly woven traps tapping against her thighs as she made her way along the dirt path down to the river. There were a number of waterfall-fed rivers that led away from the upper realm. Jax knew the best one for fish. It was a smaller waterfall, much wispier than some of the others, but considering how far the water had to fall, it was probably much more impressive at the top. In the dry season, the water sometimes did not reach the lower realm at all, Instead, it disappeared and evaporated as mist halfway down. Luckily, the dry season was not for another three months. The river was slow-moving, wide and deep, the perfect spot for fish to laze in the sun, nibbling the mosquitoes and water striders that spent too long on the surface. Jax could see their shadows darting here and there. She spent a few minutes watching them before she determined the best places to set her traps. The riverbank was dotted with numerous sizes of boulders that created caves and passageways for the fish to swim in and out of. If she were a fish, that's where she would hide. Considering that for a moment, she selected an area that already had two fish darting around in it. She double-checked each trap separately, going over her knots and inspecting the narrow openings. Then she placed one in the spot in the shallows, nestled in the rocks along the bank, and tied the rope around a boulder a little higher up. The other one she tied to a tree stump first, then threw it out to the middle of the river. It bobbed and dipped in the water before sinking to the bottom. With her hands on her hips, Jax grinned. It had been a while since she had had fresh fish for dinner. Her work done, Jax turned and walked along the riverbank toward the waterfall, carefully stepping from rock to rock until she reached a particularly flat one, she took off her shoes, rolled her socks up, and tucked them away, then dipped her feet into the cool water. The sun had warmed the rock and the water, so both felt pleasant. Jax lowered her still red hands into the river and half-heartedly tried to rid her nails of bean residue. She tried to see if any fish were taking an interest in her traps, 
but her hands had sent ripples across the water's surface and made it difficult to see the world below. A small brown bird scratched at the dirt on the opposite bank. Jax watched as the bird pulled an especially fat worm out of the ground and gulped it down. Her eyes shifted past the bird to scan the bank. She was sure she had seen something flicker. A flash of sunlight glinting off a rock or maybe a trick of light off the water. She stood up and shaded her eyes. There was something caught on the other side of the river. Good afternoon, Jacqueline. A voice puffed behind her. Jolted from her investigation, Jack spun around to see Master Bruna Leshy, the town's inventor and head architect, carrying a large ceramic pot in her arms. Master Leshy's black hair was pulled back in a loose bun and streaked through with gray. Unruly wisps of hair poked out like wires around her head. Her cheeks were flushed, and she had a piece of chalk behind her ear. She wore cream and burgundy skirts split as though for writing, and each side panel had several deep pockets sewn into it. Jax could see various tools and oddities poking out from within the folds. She recognized a protractor, the handle of a paintbrush, and a thin leather-bound notebook. The end of a tape measure hung like a ribbon down to her knee. As her skirts billowed around her ankles, Jax noticed the solid and scuffed toes of Master Leshy's work boots. Hello, Master Leshy. Do you need a hand with that? Jax asked. She used the title with reverence. To be considered a master of any craft or vocation was a deep honor. But to be considered a master of invention? One could only dream. The other woman smiled. Actually, if you don't mind, dear, only I seem to have overestimated my strength and underestimated the weight of this blasted thing. Jax put her shoes back on and made her way over the rocks that lined the riverbank. I usually send my son Philip. You know Philip? He'd be a few years older than you, to fetch the water. I mean, he's growing up so fast, I might as well put his muscles to good use. But I was in the middle of an equation. Master Leshy continued as Jax took up half the weight of the pot. Master Leshy grunted as the weight shifted. I'm designing the new clock tower, you see, and I thought to myself, I must have water from the upper realm, elevate my thinking. And then when I thought that, I couldn't think of anything else, so here I am. She shrugged her shoulders slightly despite the weight of the pot. Jax inhaled sharply. Wow, you're designing the new clock tower. What will it look like? When do you start building it? How long will it take you? What's the equation for? As she rattled off her questions, she helped Master Leshy lift the ceramic pot higher, and together they walked over to the base of the waterfall. They set the pot on a large, flat outcrop and let the water flow into it. Master Leshy cocked her head to the side to listen as Jax finished speaking, then thought for a moment in the silence that followed. Jax worried that she had annoyed her, but then Master Leshy's green eyes snapped into focus as a broad smile spread across her lips. She took the chalk out from behind her ear, looked around at the rocks, and declared, Wonderful questions. I'll show you, shall I? Apparently satisfied with a flat rock to Jax's left, she turned her back on the pot and began to draw a rough clock tower. The clock tower itself will not stand much taller than the old one, but it will be much more long-lasting, I assure you. I've designed a metal conductor on the top spire here, she pointed that will have a grounding cable running down the side of the tower here, she traced the line. This way we won't have the gears of the clock frying and the whole thing burning down like the last one if lightning chooses to strike again. 
I know they say never in the same spot twice, but I never got a source on who they claim to be. They also said the sun revolved around the world at one point, so I won't take my chances. Jacks grinned as Master Leshy continued. Of course, I've been given some artistic license, so I intend to add my own flair, you know. She smiled again, and Jax noticed she seemed to buzz with excitement. You see, the last tower was so wide across with such a sad excuse for a roof. I intend to top the entire structure with a dome. She paused, her chalk suspended above the large arc she had just drawn on the top of the tower. Almost absentmindedly, she started filling in the dimensions and sketching out the tiling pattern. As for when we start building and how long it will take, I'm not sure. I hope to have the working drawings finalized by the end of the month, Master Leshy said. And the equation you were working on? Jax asked excitedly. Oh, yes, well, I'm having a bit of trouble with the domed roof. I want to build it without the use of scaffolds because the tower itself is quite tall and wide across, but I am stuck with how to do it. I want the dome to be self-supporting. There also seems to be a lot of other little factors to consider that even had me thinking, well, thatch and canvas didn't look too bad in the wee hours of the morning. Luckily, I slapped my own wrist for that thought. Hence the need to elevate my thinking with some upright water. She waved vaguely to the now overflowing pot. Jax nodded in bewildered agreement, although unsure how upright water was supposed to help. The sound of the waterfall filled the silence between them. Jax studied the chalk outline of the clock with the high domed roof for a long while. She extended her pointer finger and started tracing the dome outline, not noticing that Master Leshy had stopped her detailing to watch her. As her finger completed the arc, she thought aloud, what if you built two domes, one inside the other? Master Leshy's eyes snapped back to the rough sketch. What did you say, dear? She breathed. Jax hesitated. Well, I just meant that you could build two domes, one inside that could be the structure and the scaffold that the construction workers could sit on to build the outer, stronger, and more weatherproof one. She hadn't realized that she had plucked the chalk out of Master Leshy's hands and started adding her idea to the blueprint as she spoke. She looked up at Master Leshy, who appeared to have stopped breathing, her eyes wide. Jax looked down at the chalk, at her additions, and quickly thrust the chalk back into Master Leshy's hands. White dust clung to her fingertips, and she scrubbed them quickly on her skirts. Apologetically, Jax began to mumble. It was just a thought, but you brilliant, brilliant child, of course. Master Leshy cupped Jax's face in her hands. And the interior dome could be lightweight and easy to construct. Now, we still have the problem of how to build that first dome and how to distribute the weight while we're building, especially when the mortar is drying. Oh, but I've been experimenting with a new design for bricklaying. And my dear girl, oh, you marvelous girl, how old are you? Jax was caught off guard by the sudden change of topic. Um, 13, ma'am, she replied. 13, what an age, the cusp of womanhood, and with such potential. Maria Tabart's daughter, yes? Your father was Francis? Lovely man, pity that. Jax blinked at the unexpected mention of her father, but Master Leshy continued. 13, hmm, 13 years old. 
You'd be starting to funnel into careers at school about now, wouldn't you? Do you enjoy school? Jax nodded and added, Yes, and Master Tremaine has been bringing in people to talk to us about the things we can do, but everyone just assumes I'll keep working on Mum's farm. Jax hurried to hide the disappointment she felt and continued. I don't get to go to class all the time, especially when Mum needs extra help for the harvest, but I like to read and Master Tremaine gives me extra work so I can keep up. Master Leshy nodded and tapped her chin with the piece of chalk absentmindedly, leaving a small white smudge behind. She clicked her tongue and declared, Jacqueline, I think I will have a word with your mother, but first, I won't just assume, so I'll ask. Are you interested in all this? She gestured at the sketch. Jax looked first at the drawing and then at Master Leshy, unsure of what she meant. You mean clocks? She asked. Master Leshy smiled. Clocks, yes, and learning how things work, how things are built, how to put things together. Oh, yes. Yes, I am, ma'am, very much. Perfect. Master Leshy walked over to her pot, attempted to lift it, tipped a little bit of water out, then tried again with a little more success. Jax hurried over to help her. Perfect, Master Leshy repeated. Then I will have a word with your mother. You have given me a lot to think about, Jacqueline. It appears my search for enlightenment via upright water was brought to me instead via conversing with you. Thank you. Jax did not know what to say. She realized too late that she had been staring with her mouth hanging open and gave her head a quick shake. What, um, you're well, thank you. Together, they carried the pot away from the waterfall and toward Master Leshy's small wheelbarrow that Jax had not noticed before. Master Leshy made sure that the pot was secure, then moved to the back of the wheelbarrow and picked up the handles. She smiled at Jax. I expect you'll hear from me shortly, but until then, it has been a pleasure talking with you this afternoon, Jacqueline. She gave the wheelbarrow an experimental first push, then set off down the path. Goodbye, and keep reading, she called over her shoulder as Jax waved and bid her farewell. Jax watched her disappear toward the town. Talk to my mother, she mused. Could she really need my help with the clock? Jax's grin widened, and she allowed herself a moment to imagine working alongside a woman like Master Leshy. Sighing contentedly, she turned back to the river. The sun was inching lower toward the crest of the upper realm. Jax checked each of her traps on the off chance that a fish awaited her. Nothing yet. She threw them back in the water, made sure each trap was securely fastened to its respective rock, and made her way back home, her steps light and her smile wide. Her mind buzzed with thoughts of what tomorrow would bring. Three, two types of ships. Jax was crouching on the rocks at the base of the waterfall again. It was mid-morning, the rooster had long since heralded the new day, but the sun was not yet up and the grass was silver with dew. Jax blew into her cupped hands to warm them. She had been so excited that she had taken a break from her chores to check the traps. Bending over, she pulled the rope of the first trap. She watched the water ripple as it began to surface and float toward her across the river. Hoisting it up on the rock next to her, she peered inside. A satisfied smile spread across her face. Two fat fish were flipping their tails feebly, 
She could see the shine of their scales through the trap's opening. Eagerly, Jax moved to where the second trap was tied and began to pull it in. She had the trap almost to the bank when the sun broke over the horizon and lit up the river with a flash. Jax, startled, lifted her arms up to cover her eyes and dropped the rope. She fumbled to catch it, throwing herself off balance with her eyes still blinded. Flailing to right herself, she stepped forward, slipped on the dew-covered rocks, and landed with a painful splash in the freezing water. Jax yelped and scrambled to get back on the rocks. The water was shallow and it was not moving quickly, but the shock of the cold brought with it the memory of her father's voice. Get to the bank, I'm right behind you. She panicked and pulled herself out of the stream, shaking. Her heart was in her throat and she screwed her eyes shut tight. Breathe. She stayed curled up on the rock until her heart rate and her breathing returned to normal. Slowly, she opened her eyes and looked around. Her second trap had floated off and disappeared down the river in the commotion. The first trap was waiting for her farther up the bank. She took another couple of deep breaths and focused her mind on the traps. One gone, one full. Not a total loss. She gave her head a shake, struggling to push the memory's residue away. The sun stretched its rays across the sky innocently. Jack stood up to make her way to the remaining trap when a familiar glinting on the opposite bank caught her eye. Squinting, she tried to make out what it was. There was definitely something there, bobbing among the rocks. Curious and eager to distract herself, she looked for a way across the river. The bridge was all the way in town, and she did not fancy taking that detour. Jax walked over to the waterfall. She judged the distance between the water and the cliff face to be just big enough to fit behind. Carefully, she pressed herself against the rock and slid behind the falling water. The world beyond looked distorted through the veil. Had she been taller or wider, she would have gotten even wetter than she already was. For a moment, she existed safely in a world of rushing water. Her ears filled with the sound and everything else faded away. She closed her eyes and smiled at the cold pinpricks of mist dancing across her cheeks and forehead. When Jax made it to the opposite bank, she walked over to where she remembered the object to be and searched among the rocks. It did not take her long to find it. She lifted it from the water. It was a small, red, very battered wooden boat. She turned it over in her hands, marveling at the intricate rigging of the sail and the delicate details on the hull. Jack sat cross-legged on the ground as she inspected it. Despite the damage, the boat still shone as the water beaded and slid off the hull. Her fingers traced the outline of the little door on the top deck. She gingerly opened the latch and slid the door open. A little glass vial lay inside. Excitedly, she tipped the vial onto her palm. What a find, she thought. She could not believe her luck. Where had it come from? Looking around, her eyes followed the waterfall up, up, up to the very top of the cliff. No, could it? Her eyes widened at the thought. It's from the upper realm. She went to open the vial when she noticed the sun had risen higher in the sky. She frowned. She hadn't meant to stay this long, and she didn't want her mother to worry. There was still a lot to do today. Hurriedly, she tucked the vial into her pocket, 
clutched the boat to her chest and headed back behind the waterfall. Grabbing the trap, she set off on a jog home. Where have you been? Ms. Tabart spun around as Jax entered the house, her mouth falling open at the sight of her sopping wet daughter. You're soaking wet. Her eyes shifted from the trap in Jax's hands to the boat tucked under her arm. What have you been doing? She asked, more curious than angry this time. Jax laughed sheepishly. I went to check my traps and fell in and lost one. I'm fine, I'm fine. Noticing the look on her mother's face, she hurried to add, I caught two fish in this one. She brandished the trap triumphantly. And I found this little boat washed up on the rocks, and I... She paused and said reverentially, I think it came from the upper realm. She was so excited she did not notice her mother's expression shift from joy to doubt. But when her mother frowned and said nothing, she asked, What? Ms. Tabart bit her lip and said, Well, Plum, I'm just not sure about the boat. Are you sure it's from the upper realm? Now it was Jax's turn to frown. I'm not 100% sure. I guess it could have been left by someone playing in the stream, but... She turned the boat over in her hands, looking at its battered hull. I mean, it's been through the works, so I just thought it came over the waterfall. Plus, she added as an afterthought, it's a lot fancier than what the kids in Bridgeport would play with. Her mother looked thoughtful. Well, she began, I suppose the chances of its owner coming all the way down here to look for it are slim. Jax grinned. So I can keep it? Her mother hesitated. Yes, but just be careful who you show it to. Why? Because, well, if it is from the upper realm, we just need to be careful, that's all, Ms. Tabart said. Jax looked again at the harmless little boat and raised her eyebrows at her mother. Jax's mother sighed, and her gaze shifted past Jax's shoulder and out the window. Oh, look, she exclaimed. The sun's up and we still have a lot to do today. Let's put one fish in the cold box and I'll fry up the fatter one for lunch. Jax knew her mother was changing the subject on purpose, but her stomach growled loudly and interrupted her follow-up question. Resolving to ask later, she did what she was told and helped her mother descale, gut, and fillet the fish. Later that afternoon, while Jax was tilling the soft, loamy soil in the carrot patch, Master Leshy came to call. Jax watched as her odd little horseless cart trundled up the dirt road to their house. Master Leshy was well known in the town for having the most unusual-looking, but very practical, inventions. This cart was no exception. It was the size of a small wagon and seemed to be a four-wheeled bicycle. The cart could have fit four people in total. Master Leshy sat on the right-hand side, puffing and pedaling. Jax would hope that the three possible passengers would have pedals too, as it seemed to be a lot of work for just one person. Jax's mother had been spreading fertilizer on the cabbage patch. She stood up and shaded her eyes when she heard Master Leshy approach. Good afternoon, Ms. Tabart, Master Leshy called as she approached. She pulled the cart up near the front of the house and stepped out. Jax's mother had made her way over and held out a grubby hand for Master Leshy to shake. She took it unflinchingly. Good afternoon, Master Leshy. To what do we owe the pleasure? 
Jack swiped her hands on her skirts and came to join the two older women at the front of the house. Hello, Master Leshy, she greeted her shyly. It's nice to see you again. Likewise, Jacqueline, Master Leshy replied, then turned to Jax's mother. Miss Tabart, I was hoping to have a word with you, if you're not too busy, about Jacqueline. Miss Tabart looked concerned. I hope everything is okay. Her eyes met Jax's. Have you been bothering Master Leshy? No, 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 dear, oh my, I believe I should have started this differently. Master Leshy intervened as Jax opened her mouth to reply. No, Jacqueline has done nothing to be concerned about. In fact, you must be proud of the fine young woman she is. Ms. Tabart beamed as Master Leshy continued. No, I was hoping to discuss Jacqueline's future, or at least an opportunity I would like to share with her. Jax's cheeks flushed with excitement as she looked eagerly from her mother to Master Leshy. Oh, her mother replied. Well, of course. Would you like a cup of tea? We can sit outside. Plum, why don't you finish with the carrot patch while we talk? Indignation colored Jax's cheeks. She opened her mouth to protest, but Master Leshy beat her to it. Actually, Miss Tabart, if you don't mind, I would like Jacqueline to join us. A girl must be on her own jury when her future is being discussed. I'll help you with the tea. With that, she motioned for Ms. Tabart to lead the way and followed her into the house. The two older women chatted idly about the weather and the harvest. When the kettle boiled, Jax helped carry the tea tray out to the yard. The sun shone brightly overhead. Cicadas chirped lazily in the midday heat. The trio sat beneath an old, weathered apple tree on stools fashioned from stumps by Jax's father. The tray was perched on a larger stump in the middle. Miss Tabart busied herself with the pouring and serving, while Master Leshy tucked a strand of hair back into her bun and began with a businesslike tone. Now, Miss Tabart, may I call you Maria? I will insist you call me Bruna, so it's only fair. Miss Tabart smiled and nodded as she handed a brimming cup to Master Leshy and settled on her stool with her own. Master Leshy continued. Jacqueline may or may not have mentioned it, but we ran into each other yesterday, and she helped me reach an epiphany. Without her, I dare say, I would have resorted to drowning myself in that waterfall to- Oh, dear, no, I didn't mean- Maria, I- I do apologize. At Master Leshy's words, Miss Tabart had flinched and spilled tea down her front. She hastily waved away Master Leshy's horrified expression, and Jax pushed a cloth from her pocket into her mother's hand. Miss Tabart mopped the tea up hastily with a shaky laugh, which did not quite dispel the sadness in her eyes. Oh, Bruna, don't be silly. Of course you, well, what were you saying about your epiphany? Ah, yes, if you're, I mean, yes, Master Leshy stammered. Her brows furrowed, then softened at an encouraging nod from Ms. Tabart. Haltingly, she pressed on, despite not quite knowing what to do with her hands. Like I was saying, your girl Jacqueline here really helped me out of a mental bind. As she gained momentum, the businesslike tone returned to her voice as she described her problem with the clock tower and Jax's idea to make two domes to support the roof structure. Ms. Tabart, eyes shining with pride at these words, listened and glanced back and forth between Master Leshy and Jax. Finally, she asked, That does sound impressive. So then what does this mean for Jacqueline? 
Master Leshy nodded. Well, Jacqueline's contribution got me thinking. I do understand that she has a number of duties that I would not dream of pulling her away from here. However, if you'll allow, I would like to take Jacqueline on as my apprentice. Master Leshy let the words reverberate under the apple tree's canopy. Jax's jaw dropped. Mr. Bart looked from her to Master Leshy again. But she is only 13. Surely that's too young to... Definitely not. 13 is the perfect age. Most women her age are being filtered into occupations, trades, or the military already. And while her role here on the farm is a given, it's important our girls have options. Master Leshy's eyes sparkled. And you'd take her on for, what, a few afternoons a week? Well, that would be up to her schedule here and her level of interest. So she would be working with you on the clock? Yes, mostly. I also have some side projects that we could work on together. Master Leshy turned to Jax, who was following the conversation with rapt attention. Jacqueline, you have been very quiet through all of this. I am not only asking your mother's permission, but also your opinion. Is this a path you would be interested in traveling? Jax nodded her head vigorously. Oh, yes, most definitely. She turned to her mother. I have some time in the afternoons, especially if I get my chores done in the morning or if it rains. She twirled a strand of hair around her finger excitedly. Master Leshy chuckled. Perfect. What do you say, Maria? We can always try a month and see how it goes. Miss Tabart looked thoughtful and bit her lip, torn between pride and worry. This work, this apprenticeship, will it be dangerous at all? Well, at the beginning, at least, most of the work would be purely theoretical, Master Leshy said. And after the theory? Master Leshy smiled knowingly. Maria, while I cannot protect Jacqueline from paper cuts and minor bruising, you have my word that any practical work will be as safe as I can make it, or not attempt it at all. Miss Tabart still looked uncertain. Master Leshy took her hand and assured, No harm will come to her that is within my power to prevent. Miss Tabart's next words were soft and seemed to follow each other hesitantly into the air. Well, as long as she's safe and it isn't affecting Jacqueline's chores, and she isn't too tired, I guess. I don't see why not. At least a month's trial at first. Jax jumped up and hugged her mother, almost knocking her backward off her stool. Oh, thank you, she breathed excitedly, then turned to Master Leshy. When do I start? When you have an afternoon free, come visit my workshop in town and we can work until supper time. Master Leshy smoothed her apron and tucked another strand of unruly hair back into her bun. Oh, this is a very exciting day, indeed it is. She stood and shook Jax's and Ms. Tabart's hands enthusiastically. Now, before I go, we should discuss the subject of payment. Jax's eyes lit up and she asked, I'll get paid? Both older women laughed at the look of astonishment on her face. Suddenly, the day seemed brighter, and she began to hope for a future beyond tilling carrot patches. For the rest of the afternoon, Jax felt lit up from the inside out. Her feet barely touched the ground as she skipped about the yard, floating like a sparrow in an updraft. The rest of her chores passed by in a golden whirl. 
Her hands were left to their own devices as her mind soared miles away to a world of clocks, domes, and machines that clicked and buzzed. Her mother had hugged her tightly after Master Leshy had left and mused, my girl, an apprentice. The word kept flitting around between Jax's ears, becoming more and more impressive until she imagined it had left an imprint on her forehead. It was not until Jax had changed for bed and tossed her clothes from the day in the wash basket that she remembered the boat and the message in the bottle. Hungrily, she retrieved both items and lit a candle. Careful not to drip wax on herself or her bed sheets, she slowly eased herself into bed. Pulling her bed covers around her, she brought the candle closer and looked at each item. She looked at the boat first. The sail was the worse for wear. It was ripped almost in half, and the water had damaged most of it. She could see the care taken in its construction despite the damage. Little eyelets had been hammered into the boom at intervals, and the sail had been threaded through each one and pulled tight. The details on the whole were equally intricate. Candlelight danced and flickered to caress each brushstroke as she admired the little ship. Her eyes shifted to the small bottle, and she placed the boat to float in the folds of her blankets. Jax turned the vial over in her hands, the tightly rolled note shifting slightly with the movement, and heard a faint clink against the glass. A gold ring held the note. The top of the vial was stoppered in a rich red wax. Her heart fluttered with excitement. She suddenly felt shy, as if she had stumbled on someone's diary. Tentatively, she ran a finger around the top of the bottle to break the wax seal. It flaked off in a large chunk that she gently set on her bedside table. Slowly tilting the vial, she gave it a little shake, and the roll of parchment fell into her outstretched palm. Setting the vial on her bedside next to the circle of wax, she carefully slid the ring off the tightly rolled note. She tested the ring on each of her fingers until it slid snugly on her pointer finger. Smiling and angling it so the gold caught the candlelight, she studied the engraving. It was magnificent. A coat of arms unlike one she had ever seen at school. A griffin proudly prancing in the wind. She had never seen a griffin except in books. Most Lorians agreed that they lived in the highest peaks of the Upper Realm's mountains, well above anywhere Jax could ever reach. Her heartbeat quickened. Maybe it was from a dame in the Upper Realm. She must be important to have a griffin on her coat of arms. She had a brief vision of climbing the bridge and presenting the boat to a distressed young noble while the noble's mother, lord of somewhere, pushed bulging velvet coin purses into Jax's arms in gratitude. Jax picked up the parchment. Licking her lips, she slowly unfurled the little roll of paper. It crinkled softly in the still night. Angling the letter under the light of the candle, she read, To the great unknown. If you are reading this, it means my first scouting voyage was successful. I wish I could be talking to you in person, but as Amelia the Daring always says, never leap into the void until you are sure of a safe landing. I live in the palace, and I want to know everything about the land below the clouds. What do you do for work? What do you do for fun? Where do you live? Are your houses like ours? Do you know what our houses look like? Do you even live in houses? How much do you know about us? Mother says you are just like us, but then why restrict descension and ascension? 
Most upperites, even my teachers, don't talk about the lower realm much, and you can only learn so much from books. I hope to find the answers one day, and when I do, I hope to have a friend to help me find what I am looking for. I have included a token of my friendship and hope that you will wear this always so that I may know you when I find you. Until that day, I am your friend, Connor. Voyage One. Jax looked at the ring again. It shone in the candlelight. She turned it this way and that, watching it glitter, then frowned as she noticed the contrast of the immaculate gold ring and her dirt-encrusted nails. Wear this always so that I may know you when I find you. It would not last two minutes during the strain and stain from her chores, let alone however long it took for Connor to find her. Jax glanced around the room and spotted an unused length of leather cord from one of her earlier fish trap prototypes hanging from a hook near her desk. Leather, she had discovered, stretched and was not a very effective fish prison when wet, whereas woven flax had proven to be much stronger underwater. Rising from the bed, she measured out a length, found her knife among her other tools and projects, cut the cord, and threaded the ring onto it. Satisfied, Jax tied the end and looped the necklace over her head. The ring fell to rest on her breastbone and was easily tucked under her shirt collar. It felt warm where it touched her skin. She settled back into bed and examined the engraving again as her mind whirled. A boy from the upper realm who lived in the palace, and she was his point of contact. She was his friend. She looked at the boat, beautifully crafted. She looked at the message. She thought of the boy sitting at the top of the cliff, looking far below, desperate for answers. The candlelight danced in her eyes as an idea began to form. She would not let him down. Four, a treat of a lesson. Cornelius? Connor froze as a voice boomed down the hall, heralding his father's arrival. He had just finished helping Hector into one of the suits of antique armor that flanked either side of the passage and had been in the process of deciding which one he wanted to occupy. He jumped back guiltily with a nervous glance at the suit that held Hector. The visor squeaked slightly as the other boys slid it open a crack. Connor shook his head vigorously and made a shushing gesture with his finger before spinning around. He heard the visor squeak shut as his father rounded the corner. Although Connor thought he had assumed a natural pose, his father smiled broadly upon seeing him. At ease, soldier. Good grief, my boy, you look like a cornered hare. The hall rang with the boom of his laugh, and Connor exhaled. Smiling sheepishly, he looked at his father, King Arryn. The man cut an imposing figure. Tall and broad-shouldered, he towered over most occupants of Queen Ariel's council chamber. His brown hair was flecked with gray, and the creases around his eyes mapped the life of one accustomed to laughter and pain in equal shares. He was a man who knew what it was to toast a friend's engagement in the morning, and speak at her funeral that evening. Today he wore his leather riding boots and a deep blue cloak. His gray and navy tunic, gray pants, and soft leather gloves were simple, yet Connor knew that his father could make a curtain look like a vestment of state. As always, he had the royal advisor's seal pinned over his heart, a silver ring encircling a crossed sword and feather. Good afternoon, father, Connor said. 
Have you been looking for me? His father clasped his gloved hands together and bounced on the balls of his feet. Not for too long, no, but I'm glad I found you with your nose out of trouble today. A prince must lead by example. Connor sighed inwardly, but his face remained impassive. For the past two years, his father had taken to lecturing Connor about the roles and responsibilities of a prince. No doubt at the urging of his mother, but at least her lessons always slipped in naturally. His heart sank. Which lecture would it be today? His father had taken to reprimanding unprincely behavior and then spinning a life lesson out of it. So far this week, his father had not considered it princely behavior to use pumpkins in the vegetable garden as target practice and had made him apologize to Master Borage, the head gardener, as well as retrieve and mend all the arrows he had used. His father had also not considered it princely behavior to spend time bothering the cooks or gossiping with the serving women and had made Connor sit in on boring council meetings and take notes on the discourse he observed. Connor thought about the little boat he had sent out on its voyage earlier that week, but his father couldn't know about that. King Arryn continued, I hoped to find you before you disappeared. Walk with me. He motioned for Connor to fall into step beside him and set off down the corridor. Connor glanced at the suit of armor again, thinking of poor Hector. No doubt his friend would be stuck there until he could return. Quickly, he began, Father, may I catch up with you in a moment? Only don't fret, my boy. I'll send Alistair along to help the poor lad out. Is it Lord St. Hector or Brutus in there today? His father had not paused or looked back as he spoke, and Connor jogged to catch up with him. It's Hector. I should have guessed. Brutus would have learned his lesson from the last time. His mother, Lord Lemmington, was very displeased to have him come home late and in such a tattered state. He missed his cousin's arrival from Bregand, you know, King Arryn said mildly. Connor did not reply. He had heard this story twice already. Instead, he changed the subject. Where are we going, father? We're meeting with your mother and going for a ride, King Arryn replied. They had turned toward the dining room, where Alistair had just emerged with a pair of candlesticks. Upon seeing his king, Alistair took up a position next to the doorway with his head bowed. Good morning, Majesty. King Arryn eyed the candlesticks and beamed. Good morning, Alistair. It's illuminating to see you. King Arryn boomed a laugh, and the corners of Alistair's mouth twitched slightly. Ah, Alistair, the day I make you laugh will be a very jolly day indeed. He chortled and scratched his cheek. You're just the man I'd hoped to find. In the Falstaff corridor, you'll find Lord Barnaby's boy in a suit of armor. See to it that he is extracted and given some refreshments. I'm afraid I have whisked away his playmate and his helper today, so whatever you can do to make him comfortable and help him find his way home. Alistair bobbed his understanding. Of course, your majesty. And went to relieve himself of his candlesticks. King Arryn turned and set off down the hall. Connor walked beside him without being asked again. The king looked down at him thoughtfully and said, you commissioned a signet ring from Master Estes. It was not a question. He was very impressed by your initiative and praised your design for your own coat of arms. Connor felt panic flood into his chest like ice water. He had a vision of the little boat disappearing over the clifftop. His father noted the pallor creep across Connor's visage and the proud grin that had begun to spread across his own face hesitated and faltered. 
I had hoped to see it for myself, King Arryn continued, puzzled. A prince should have his own coat of arms, but it appears to be causing you some anxiety. Connor gulped and stole a glance at his father, though he could not meet his eyes for long. They had stopped, and King Arryn waited expectantly. Connor did not know what to tell him, but he did know he could not tell him he had knowingly sent the ring off the cliff. Well, Connor began in a croak. He cleared his throat and continued. Um, it was beautiful, and I, I couldn't have thought of a better picture, but I, um, I lost it. He studied a spot on the floor in front of him while he waited for a reply. There was a cold silence that spread like an ocean between them. King Arryn shook his head sadly. You lost it? Yes. Son, to my knowledge, you would have had that ring in your possession for at most three days. It is an incredible act of disrespect to a man who loves you and who is proud to serve you to so callously misplace his work of considerable effort and skill. King Arryn sighed and pinched the bridge of his nose. You will go to him this afternoon and apologize, and you will not be so careless in the future. Are we clear? Connor hung his head even lower and felt the blood rush to his cheeks at the thought of telling Master Estes the fate of his work. Yes, father, he mumbled. They walked the rest of the way to the stables in stony silence. Queen Ariel was waiting for them. She was standing beside her palomino mare, feeding it slices of apple from her gloved hand. Her hair hung in a long, intricate plate down her back and shone gold in the sunlight. Even feeding her mare, she held herself with the easy grace and assurance of one used to commanding a queendom. It was often said of the queen that she was radiant like the sun's rays and quick to incinerate any who threatened her people. The queen turned at the sound of King Arryn's and Connor's footfalls across the gravel yard and her face lit up. Her blue eyes sparkled and put the sky blue of her riding habit to shame. She wore soft leather boots to match her gloves. She raised one of the latter in greeting as they approached. My queen, you are a vision. King Arryn brightened immediately and swept her into his arms. She laughed and batted him away half-heartedly while reciprocating his kiss. Connor looked away and winked at Edith, his valet, who was waiting off to the side with a change of clothes for him. She grinned, dimples deepening in her cheeks, and eyed the royal couple wistfully. Good morning, you two, his mother laughed. Cornelius, hurry and change and we can be off. Connor followed Edith toward the dressing room at the rear of the stables. The stables were alive today. He spotted three stable hands bustling about with bridles and saddles, two mucking out the stalls, and two laboring under large oat sacks to replenish the empty troughs. He breathed in deeply as the smell of hay, horse, and the sharp scent of ammonia filled his nostrils. It was a perfect day for a ride. The queendom had been blessed for several weeks with perfect weather. Odd for this time of year, but Connor did not mind. He turned to Edith. She was one of the attendants he got on with best. She was closer to him in age and always feigned ignorance when he snuck out for an adventure. He muttered quietly. Father found out I lost the ring. She whistled low. No wonder he came across the yard like a thundercloud. 
How did you lose it? Connor hesitated. It's a long story. Edith shrugged. It always is with you. Well, I hope you aren't in too much trouble. Not as bad as the time with the pig pen. Edith stifled a laugh as he continued. But I'll be hearing about it for longer than the time I dented the armor, I think. Connor sighed and eyed the bundle of clothes in her arms. They had arrived at the dressing room and she opened the door for him. Where are we going today, do you know? Connor asked her as he stepped inside. I heard the queen mention a ride along the cliffside. You are to be followed by a small escort too, so this is not going to be a public trip. Connor frowned thoughtfully, accepted the bundle of clothes, and closed the door behind him to change. The room was simple, wooden floors, wooden walls, and a small vanity and chair with a brush, a wash basin and towel, and some bottles of different fragrances. He looked at his reflection in the mirror. His blue eyes, so like his mother's, scanned the freckles on his nose and his mess of brown hair. He used a bit of water to try and tidy his hair. A small escort usually meant only two guard pairs, which, if he was lucky, meant Ileana Drift might be one of the women in armor today. Maybe this time he'd have the courage to say more than hello to her. Either way, he wanted to look mature, dignified, and not like he'd been goofing around like a child all morning. He grimaced. A prince always presents himself in a manner that puts others at once at ease and on their guard. His father's recent lecture came to mind unbidden. It seemed it was never a straightforward thing to be a prince. He shrugged and began to dress, pulling on his tan riding pants and deep blue riding tunic. The trim was gold, and he marveled at the way the tailor had put such intricate detailing on an outfit that was made to appear simple. He wrapped and tied a brown leather belt around his waist, taking time to make sure the woven pattern faced the right way. Last, he pulled on his boots and gloves, flexing his fingers, and clasped a light cloak around his shoulders. Appraising himself again in the mirror, he ran the brush through his now damp hair and headed out to where Edith was waiting for him. Her eyes caught at his carefully belted tunic and styled hair, and she grinned. Hoping Ileana comes to save you today, your grace, she teased, taking the bundle of clothes he thrust at her. Connor glowered. None of your business, Edith, he said. She just laughed. You know she's much too old for you, and I won't be the one to say I told you so when she breaks your heart. Connor waved her away, not deigning to respond to her comment. Edith called after him, laughter in her voice. Have a lovely day, your grace. He rolled his eyes, a smile crinkling their corners, and strode back to the yard where his father and mother were waiting next to their horses. His father stroked the neck of a large blue roan mare with black mane and tail. At Connor's approach, the queen and king swept themselves up onto their mount's backs. Connor spotted his chestnut filly, Zenith. Her coat was freshly brushed and shone red in the sun. His saddle beckoned, and Master Boreas, the head groom, crouched low and offered his clasped and cupped hands to help him up onto her back. Once Connor had settled into the saddle, he looked around, noting the four guards kitted and armored, waiting for orders. Each woman wore a uniform designed for mobility and speed, light armor, a glinting dagger, and leather strap at the belt. It was said the less a woman had to unsheathe her dagger, the better she was as a fighter. 
Master Shiv Cassida Rathbone, captain of the Queen's Guard, wore a sword at her belt that had only ever been unsheathed twice. Connor eyed each of the guards casually. To his delight and horror, he noticed Ileana drift in the ranks of the four women accompanying them today, her long black hair tied in a simple tail down her back. He swallowed and quickly averted his gaze. Their saddlebags were laden with gear and, Connor hoped, lunch. At a nod from the queen, the party set off as one, a guard pair in front and a guard pair behind. Ileana nodded formally to Connor as she passed him to bring up the rear. Smiling weakly, Connor kicked his filly to follow slightly behind his parents' steeds. The birds chirped lazily in the mid-morning heat. Connor swatted the occasional fly away as it buzzed near his ear. His parents were talking quietly together. Connor hoped it was not about the ring, but the way his mother looked over her shoulder at him made his stomach sink to the saddle. The horses clip-clopped across the gravel of the stable yard and down a cobble road until they reached a dirt trail winding toward the gardens and beyond, toward the cliff face. The guards had obviously been briefed on the day's route, as they chose each path with purpose and without turning to verify with the queen. They traced a similar route to the cliff as Connor had followed earlier that week with his boat. As his heart rate began to increase, he scolded himself for being paranoid. There was no way anyone but he knew what had happened that day, and even if they did find out, it was not illegal to make contact with the lower realm. Or at least he had never been told it was. Even so, Connor sighed in relief when they rode across the stream he had followed to the cliff edge and left it behind them as they continued through the trees. The king laughed raucously at a comment the queen made and roused Connor from his musings. Mother, he called. Where are we going today? His mother allowed her mare to fall back so that she could ride abreast with Connor. What, your father never told you? Ahead of them, the king simply shrugged. He never asked. She rested a gloved hand on the pommel of her saddle. Well, Cornelius, you've been very patient waiting for this long. Today we have a bit of a treat for you. Treat or lesson? Connor asked simply. Queen Ariel laughed. My sweet son, the sooner you learn that life is an endless lesson, the better. She tilted her head to the side and looked at Connor until he looked away. How about we settle for a treat of a lesson? I promise that you will laugh at least twice today. Connor grinned. Deal. So what's the treat lesson? I think it better if we show you. You know I'm one for dramatics. With that, she reared her horse and began galloping away, ahead of the guards and the king, who clamored to keep up. Connor laughed and spurred Zenith to follow. The queen called over her shoulders, there's one. Queen Ariel finally allowed her horse to slow once they emerged through the trees to a large clearing on the edge of the cliff. Easy, Quinn, that's my girl, she murmured into the mare's ear. Whoa, Esther. The king's voice reverberated through the clearing, seeming to echo off the large boulders that outlined its perimeter. Aster and her rider came to a jolting halt. She flicked her head and nickered. Connor's filly had begun to slow to a trot as they cleared the trees, and he pulled gently on her reins, walking her to stand beside his mother. They all dismounted and handed their reins to the awaiting guards, two of whom collected them and set about tying them up to graze while the other two began laying a blanket and setting out a picnic lunch. 
There was a selection of fruits, meats, cheeses, and some crusty bread, all of which made Connor's stomach growl in anticipation. He was glad to see Master Marmaduke had included extra fruit tarts for him. Once the guards had finished preparing the lunch for the royal family, Connor saw his mother retrieve four parcels from her saddlebags. He walked over to join her, and she handed him two to give to the guard pair. He felt butterflies twitching in his stomach as he approached Ileana and the other woman who had tied up the horses. Ileana thanked him with a radiant smile. For a moment, Connor just stared until he realized he was staring and tried to say something impressive, only to find his mind had gone completely blank. Suddenly too shy to look her in the eye, he fought for a response. Not able to settle between your welcome and my pleasure, he stuttered, your pleasure, my welcome. Mortified, he handed the second woman her parcel without a word and retreated. He felt his cheeks burn and noticed the guards share a look with each other, but they were kind enough to keep their thoughts to themselves. The guards then walked to the edge of the meadow and positioned themselves at evenly spaced points in a half circle where the trees met the clearing. Connor continued to watch Ileana from the corner of his eye. She sat with her back to the clearing under a large oak tree and opened the parcel she had received. It was a packed lunch. That was definitely more words than just hello, he thought glumly. Cornelius, his father beckoned from where he sat on the blanket. I can't be responsible for you missing the fruit tarts if you aren't here to defend them, my boy. And he licked the remnants of custard off his thumb. Hey, Connor called indignantly and hurried to join his parents. They ate, for the most part, in silence that spoke to how delicious the meal was more than any remaining tension between father and son. For this, Connor was grateful. He helped himself to another roll and began filling it with cheese and slices of meat when his mother leaned back, dusted crumbs from her hands, and asked, How much do you know about the upper and lower realms? Connor paused, laden roll halfway to his open mouth, and struggled to organize a coherent answer. She waited patiently, and he knew from experience she could wait all day for a response. Er, he began. Well, I know what Master Cleo has told me in my lessons. I know that the bridge is our only connection to the lower realm. And the waterfalls, he mused before continuing. I know that the last time there was a grand dissension was when I was born, and the last time there was an ascension was, uh, well, actually, I don't know that, but even longer ago. And I know that the upper realm is where we live and where other noble families and... And there are cities and towns and farms in the upper realm, and I assume there are cities in the lower realm, and uh, sometimes it rains in the lower but not in the upper, because I see the tops of the clouds, but they don't make it here. His mother let him ramble himself into silence, and he finished somewhat lamely under her steady gaze. The truth was, he really knew nothing about the lower realm. He did not even know if it was part of their queendom or if it had a different set of royalty. Well, it appears most of your information is based on observation rather than teachings, a fact that I will have to talk to Master Cleo about. It appears her history lessons could do with some padding, Queen Ariel remarked dryly. No, no, Mother, her lessons are... I know lots of history. I know about the Centennial Feud and how Queen Freya III helped bring peace to the Upper Realm... He tried to list the queens backward in his head, sticking his tongue out in concentration. 
I think Queen Freya III was queen two queens before you. You're right. Do you know how long the centennial feud lasted? His mother asked. Connor smiled. One hundred years. She nodded and smoothed out a wrinkle in the blanket. And do you know how Queen Freya III ended the centennial feud? She asked. Connor thought for a moment, then answered, Was it something to do with the bridges? Again, the queen nodded, then explained. During the centennial feud, there were five bridges between the upper and lower realms. Trade between the two lands was frequent, and hostility between the two lands was constant. The Lorians viewed those who lived in the upper realm to be arrogant, spoiled, and exploitative. The Upperites viewed those who lived in the lower realm as dishonest, greedy, and lazy. Rooted in truth, that one, the king said under his breath. Queen Ariel shot him a look, and he busied himself with a piece of cheese. Many deaths occurred on the bridges, she continued, and many fights resolved outside of the law created unrest in villages and towns throughout both lands. Guards kept making mistakes, citizens were wrongfully imprisoned, or worse, and the people were losing faith in their authority. The body count kept increasing, and no one knew who to blame. So it was a war? Connor asked. No, there was never an outright battle. The bridges made it impractical to send troops up or down, as the toll keepers could destroy the bridge at any point. The toll keepers, or toll guards as they're known now, were employed from both upper and lower realms to ensure that no one land had sole control of a bridge. They were also trained to destroy the bridge if any threat arose to either of the two lands, Queen Ariel explained. Connor thought about this and shuddered. That was a long way to fall. He thought about the one remaining bridge. Wait, then what happened to the four other bridges? All destroyed, his mother replied and access to the one remaining bridge is severely restricted. There is now no toll to collect. Only express permission given by the queen allows ascension or descension. Why? Connor asked. Queen Freya III believed that it was the tasting of greener pastures that was the reason such animosity grew between the two lands. At the look of confusion on Connor's face, the queen picked up two fruit tarts. Say you have this fruit tart, she said, handed the tart to Connor, and held the other in her own hand. You like fruit tarts, she stated. Yes, he said. Are you happy with your tart? she asked. Yes, he hesitated, his eyes darting to his mother's. But you're looking at my fruit tart, she pointed out simply. Yes. So even though you have a fruit tart, you are looking at mine. Why? Connor understood. He answered honestly. I was counting the strawberries. I wanted to make sure yours didn't have more. Queen Ariel smiled. His father chuckled from where he had been watching the exchange and shook his head. You were envying my strawberries. Upperites envied the sprawling space and simplicity of the Lorian villages. Lorians envied the affluence of the Upperite cities. Whatever it was, the frequent visits apparently only made their avarice grow. Connor began to nod, paused, then asked, Avarice? Envy, like jealousy. Oh, so then by taking away the ability to visit, people didn't know what they were missing out on, and everyone was happy again, Connor asked. 
His mother smiled and brushed his hair away from his face. For the most part, yes, she said. You're queen of the lower realm, too. How do you rule the lower realm if you barely ever go there? Good question. Yes, I rule the upper and the lower realms. However, the villages and towns in the lower realm are ruled by their own mayors and governors. They are part of the queendom, but are free to make their own policies and laws that are relevant to their people. As long as they do not contradict the ruling values that were outlined by Queen Freya III during the Great Divide, when the two lands were officially separated and the four bridges destroyed, she clarified. And you rule all of it by yourself? Connor asked in a soft, awed voice. Queen Ariel took a delicate bite out of her fruit tart before replying, Not all by myself. I have your father to advise me, and of course the Council of Four. Connor thought of the four stern women he often saw seated below his mother in the throne room or on either side of her in the council chambers. If father advises you, what does the council do? He asked. Well, they advise me too. It's always important to draw information from a variety of sources. Otherwise, your knowledge and practices become rigid and stale. The Council of Four specialize in the traditions, policy, and cultural heritage of the queendom. They advise me in a way that helps me maintain the integrity of our queendom and ensures our ways continue on. They are also in charge of the queendom's finances and have roles in the military. Connor nodded, thinking. He asked, so if you barely go to the lower realm, what's to stop them from finding their own queen? At Connor's words, his father stiffened and his mother blinked as though she had been slapped. She put a hand on his father's knee as he opened his mouth to reply and he closed it again. Connor felt the back of his neck grow hot. He had not realized the treason of his words until they fluttered boastfully around the clearing. His mother smiled again, although sadly this time. Gold, she replied simply. There are no gold sources in the lower realm at all. We have it all, and they need it. So we have a situation where, as long as we rule fairly and do not presume to meddle in their ways of life, they do not appear to mind falling under our banners and attending our ceremonial processions. Once yearly, a shipment of gold is distributed to the various cities and villages in exchange for a percentage of their harvest, livestock, and minerals, like salt. Connor could sense that there was more to the situation than she was letting on, but he liked the tidy bundle of information she had presented him with. No gold sources at all? He racked his brain. Surely Master Cleo had mentioned where griffins live. He couldn't remember her saying they had homes in the lower realm. Scratching his chin absently, he commented, I didn't know we were the only ones with griffins, but I guess that makes sense. I mean, Lorians could just fly on up if they had a flock, a herd, a pride. What's a group of griffins called? A court, his father answered automatically. A court? Oh, like the court. Well, if they could just fly up on a court of griffins, the bridge restriction wouldn't matter, Connor said. You're right, replied his mother. And that's assuming a griffin would ever let a human on its back. That feat has only happened a handful of times in recorded history. It's enough that they deign to share their golden eggshells with us, and that is only because they have no use for them. Queen Ariel paused, then changed the subject. 
But we've steered very far off course, she said. Come with me. As she spoke, she stood up and held out her hand to help Connor to his feet. His father did not appear to need to follow and contented himself with eating the untouched roll Connor had prepared earlier. Mother and son walked over to the edge of the cliff and stopped at the point where the updraft coming from the cliff face began to ruffle their cloaks. His mother stood for a time, surveying the expanse of land laid out below, taking in the rolling hills, the viridian forests, and noting the sprawling villages dotted around the lakes, rivers, and bogs. From up here, with the enclosing mountains, the lower realm looked like a big basin. She closed her eyes, inhaled deeply, and opened them again upon her exhale. Connor did not know why, but he did the same. Without looking at him, Queen Ariel affirmed, I know you have noticed your father and I have increased our interest in your education. Connor nodded. Yes, I noticed, he said. Her mother chose to ignore the tone of his voice and continued. You need to understand that these lessons are to prepare you for the life you are destined to lead. You also need to understand that we will not always be around to teach them. Connor looked up at his mother sharply, but her face betrayed nothing. Our land and our people are our most important priority, sometimes at the sacrifice of our own lives, and certainly at the sacrifice of our own wants and desires. We must rule with strength and have the wisdom to understand when we need to be gentle. We must rule with intelligence, even in the face of peril. We cannot afford to indulge in a base flight or fight response because this response is rooted solely in self-preservation. We must always respond consciously and with the fate of our people at the forefront of our minds. You know more than anyone that, as I did not have a daughter who could have taken my place on the throne, you play an important role in the selection of our next queen. I was born and raised to be queen. I bested the contest of daughter heirs designed by the council to prove my worth as future ruler, and I was lucky to find in your father my second half. If you are fortunate in the next selection, you will also find your match, a woman whose heart beats with yours, and one who you will support to rule as an extension of her own thoughts. If not, you will be expected to serve as chief advisor to the queen, and she will be free to marry whichever woman or man she deems worthy. Either way, you will be her partner and will help her carry the burden of ruling. When the contest of queens reveals my successor, you will be expected to stand beside her as your father now stands beside me. Your training and experience under my teachings make you an invaluable asset to whomever takes my place. So, my sweet prince, she turned to him then and smiled. Spread out before you and stretching out behind you is your future. Both the lower and upper realms will be your queendom. If this thought does not terrify you, it will. And if it does, good. It is a responsibility that will consume you if you let it. You have a difficult task ahead of you, but I can promise you it is worth every moment. She turned to look again across the realm. Connor looked as well, now through her eyes, and the sun illuminated the far reaches of the queendom as though the land were made of light, each hill a glistening emerald, each lake a sapphire. The jewels of his inheritance nestled in the impenetrable walls of the surrounding mountains. 
a treasure trove so precious it took his breath away. He bowed his head, humbled. How could he be worthy of such riches? His mother, as though guessing his thoughts, continued. It will take time, and you may never stop doubting yourself. But beware, self-doubt does nothing for the people you are sworn to serve. You must believe in yourself, and others will too. And remember, she drew him into a hug, her chin just resting on the top of his head. You are only fourteen. You will learn much of this in time. He laughed with a relief he could not hide from her, and she grinned mischievously. And there's the second. I told you you'd laugh at least twice today. It seems our two protagonists are both dreaming of realms beyond their own, but they each have lessons to learn first. Will Jax find a way to send a message to her new friend? What will her apprenticeship entail? And will Connor learn to shoulder his responsibilities? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books and podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.